Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which this work was developed and is presented. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Before this episode begins, I would like to give a content warning. During this discussion, Maya and I address the topics of homophobia and transphobia, suicide, death and also the systematic violence against the queer community. If this is something that makes you very uncomfortable or is perhaps triggering for you, please feel free to skip this episode. Thank you. Hello there, my name's Angauri. My name's Maya. And you are listening to The Community Library, a podcast, book club and discussion space. This episode, Maya and I will be discussing Pulp by Robin Talley. But before we do, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, Maya? Um, My name's Maya O'Keefe. I study fine arts and I'm a ceramicist. That is a very brief description of all the amazing things that you do. (laughs) Maya also does parkour and has a very cool tattoo and has two dogs. Yeah, and I'm one of five kids and I really love books and I love reading. Maya and I were also in literature class together. So, Pulp by Robin Talley. This story follows dual timelines. One timeline is set in present day following Abby, who has to do a big project for her senior year. And she decides to research the world of lesbian pulp fiction from the 1950s. And the other timeline follows Janet, who is living in the 1950s and also discovers pulp fiction, lesbian pulp fiction, and decides to write one herself. And we follow the journey of these two women and it's about love and loss and writing and finding your voice. A lot of it covers forming an, like a selfhood, an identity um, when you're gay and how like media's projection of homosexuality influences how you view yourself. Yeah, so did you know much about the world of lesbian pulp fiction from the 1950s before reading this honestly no not very much at all yeah and I'm actually really curious about it now because I haven't actually read any lesbian pulp fiction from the 1950s but I really want to now yeah I didn't know much about it at all and I researched some of it some of it's really hard to find like I tried to find a like free pdf to download online couldn't find anything there was nothing at my library so it is a very kind of niche tucked away pocket of history shall we move on to our first segment which is judging a book by its cover i read a physical copy of this i think there's only been one publication because it came out last year and it's yellow and it has that classic like um dotted print that you see in like comic books or or pulp fiction it has a figure on the front a woman dressed in kind of 50s clothes and actually her glasses are very similar to the glasses you're wearing right now i found the fact that the cover was obviously inspired by pop art really really interesting 
yeah, I really like it. I love the bold colors. It was a really like satisfying book to have placed on my nightstand. Like it just looked aesthetically pleasing and beautiful. But you read the audiobook, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, So I had the same cover on my screen when I read it. I don't mind audiobooks, but I prefer having like a physical book. But it was an interesting experience. I liked being able to do other things while like listening. Um, But the woman's voice who narrated it. Now, I can't remember her off the top of my head, but she didn't. She she was great at reading. Like she didn't have an annoying voice or anything. She actually had a really pleasant voice, but she didn't change voices for different characters very well. And so I was constantly a little bit confused. That would have been frustrating. Another thing that I noticed while reading this, like in terms of the physical printing of the book, there were quite a few font changes. In the book, there are a few letters. So Janet writes a letter to her favorite author of a lesbian pulp fiction novel, and she receives a letter back as well as a typed letter from the publication house. So we get all these font changes like loopy handwriting or the serif font of a typewriter. And I really like that. I used to really hate that, actually, um, because I thought, oh, I don't need that. I, I can imagine it in my mind. But I actually really like when publications and books play with different fonts because I think it gives your eyes a rest. It allows you to like mentally switch over in your brain to think, oh, we're, we're reading a letter from this person now or, oh, this is a newspaper article. Like it clearly distinguishes these different forms of writing from the narration and the dialogue which I like but you didn't get that in the audiobook no I didn't know um the lady would put on different voices for the author that um Janet writes to she put on like this really really like sophisticated voice which was funny and I don't think I would have imagined that in my head I would have imagined her as being really really down to earth I think she did a really really good job of pausing in moments when like especially like the tension between Abby and Lynn um kind of capturing like these moments like where she would like hesitate but like between when they talk to each other and sometimes I'd forget that it was just her voice because she would kind of capture like the slight sexual tension or awkward tension yeah it was interesting I really liked that part of it like watching their dialogues happen so shall we move on to our next segment where in the world in this segment we will talk about setting the limitations of the world and specifically the two different timelines that we visit and although they are set in the same physical space they're set in a different time period and how that affects the world and the writing and how that's explored so obviously we cover two different timelines here so we have 2017 and 1955 these worlds are super different in just the way that they feel and the kind of tones that they have. I mean the obvious thing to talk about is McCarthyism with the 50s and how that affected the world. We studied kind of aspects of McCarthyism in literature class when we were looking at Cat on a Hot Tin Roof so do you want to elaborate on that? Sure. Um, I mean, McCarthyism was during an area where there was a lot of fear of communism and as kind of like, I guess, what would you call it, like a fear tactic, um, communism was often linked with people who were gay would be more likely to be a communist. During McCarthyism, people were dobbing in their neighbours for being communists and such. And so everyone was really, really wary of everyone around them. And I think her dad being a politician added a really interesting element. Yeah. Yeah, I did want to talk about that. So 
um, Janet in 1955, her dad works in government. He works with and for Joseph McCarthy. He's on the Republican side. And Marie meets another lesbian couple who work with her and they invite her over to her house and she says, okay, well, I'm going to bring my girlfriend, Janet. And the women that they visit, when they find out that Janet's dad works for the Republicans, they are very wary. These two women immediately start questioning Janet and asking her, like, are you a spy? Are you working for the Republicans? Are you going to out us? She really has this moment of realizing that her dad is part of something greater that is negatively affecting her and hurting her and her friends. I really loved that moment where she kind of goes, oh, I've never thought about the fact that maybe my dad's decisions and maybe my dad's work does not align with my values. I always love that aspect of coming of age stories where the kids or the the young adults realize that their parents are not gods and they don't have all the answers, they don't make the right decisions. I also wanted to talk about like, so while we're still on the subject of the 1950s world and that setting, the fact of how private and secretive everything is and you really get this sense of secrecy because all of the conversations that Janet and Marie have are in private like they have to hide in her bedroom they have to close all the doors all the windows like put down the shutters and you know hide out in the shed or go to the attic like it's it's all these very very private spaces And I think that really affected the way that I read the book and read that certain timeline. Can you remember when they first kissed and they thought that someone had seen them Mm -hmm. and you just felt completely terrified? Like in that moment, you got this really authentic glimpse into what it must be like to just live in constant fear of people reporting you. Because that's one of the things when I was um, reading slash listening to the book, I think progress has been like comparing like 60 years ago to contemporary times it was like obvious how much had changed but also like how old Hannah Gatsby her experience when she was younger just in Tasmania was just insane like just like she lived in that fear of you know things like gay bashings and just that in some ways we've made so much progress but in others we haven't um but I liked how it wasn't focusing on all of the negative aspects it was really it was a really hopeful story um which I really really love and was just it was really refreshing to see representation that wasn't really depressing (laughs) to be honest yeah Yeah. and I think it balanced that really well kind of that idea of absolute fear and terror and horror with hope and optimism and I think we still got the reality of the time while also just seeing into the head of a 17 year old girl dealing with her identity and coming out of it stronger at the end and I I really loved that so the other thing Um, in terms of setting is kind of the contrast of the present day with 1950s America. Something that we were talking about before, before we started recording, was the fact that Abby and her friends are always going to protests. And (laughs) they're always like, I swear, every time we, we revisited her story, she was 
rushing from school to go to a protest or making signs or like making t-shirts there was always something political that they were doing and this kind of connects to the theme of spaces and which spaces conversations are held in and the fact that Abby and her friends always have conversations in public spaces Mm. they don't have that element of fear Abby talks about how her group of friends is both very diverse in their gender and sexuality expression and also you know they're a very racially diverse group yeah I just thought it was a great way to kind of contrast these two time periods where one is constantly in private spaces but still fearful and another is in public spaces and less fearful and protesting and speaking up actively in public spaces yeah so it's that matter of agency and um what i just thought of then um was maybe they were going to so many um protests because they were living in america in um trump would have been happening does that make sense because we were talking about being like wow because you know like i would consider us both politically aware teenagers but i haven't been to a protest since australia day the invasion day march But I guess in America with Trump, there would be so many more. And I think also like as a literary device, if you will, (laughs) it it does really highlight the amount of change that's happened in 60 years. At the same time, however, by making it a protest, it also shows that the fight isn't over. And I think that's a very important thing because often we can talk about you know, the 1950s and 60s, we can talk about homophobia and racism and sexism as if we have solved it now in 2019. But we haven't. There is so much left to do. And I think it's a great representation of that continuation of the fight, as well as an acknowledgement of all the fights that were fought before us. Yeah. Like paying homage to the past. And, um, I think I think that's really important to consider when talking about queer identity. We wouldn't be here and we wouldn't like I wouldn't be able to just like say on a podcast casually, oh yeah, I'm bi. If it wasn't for like the queer movement before me and also I guess one of the things that they didn't touch on too much, like the queer movement was really led by queer black women, which I think is really, really important to um consider. But yeah. for a woman who threw the first stone. Yeah, Marsha P. Johnson. I feel like we all, like, everyone who's listening, can you please Google Marsha P. Johnson right now? Especially if you are queer, because she, like, the more you read about her life, the more you'll realise just, like, how amazing she is. Let's move on to talking about the characters. So we have two protagonists, Abby, who lives in 2017, and Janet, who lives in 1955 the mirroring I think that was I think that was really great because when we think about people in history we imagine them being so much more different than ourselves but the fact that um Janet and Abby were so similar really brought home that you know the people who were experiencing struggling with queer identity in the 1950s were um I mean they were just like us so we are getting exposed to both Abby's story and Janet's story. So we follow Janet, who actually decides to write her own lesbian pulp fiction novel. Meanwhile, Abby is reading a lesbian pulp fiction novel about two characters called Paula and Elaine, and it's called Women of the Twilight Realm, I think. Yeah. 
So Abby falls in love with this story and wants to track down the author. Meanwhile, the audience knows that Janet is the one who actually wrote this story and we follow her journey writing this story and we follow how it came to publication. Abby is working backwards, knowing it was published, but also wanting to know more about Janet's life. And I really like how we discover Janet's story in multiple ways. Like we discover it through the eyes of Abby and we discover it through the eyes of Janet. And I I, I really liked that, how we're being exposed to new information in both timelines. I guess it's also that dialogue between like that relatability, especially because, you know, Janet writes to that author and that author writes back. I think it's that really relatable thing of when you read a book and you're like, wow, I relate to this so much or this resonates with me so deeply. I want to like get in contact with a person who wrote it or feeling that way about a celebrity or have you got anyone at the moment who you just like really are just like, wow, I love you so much. Well, it's funny you mentioned like writing to an author because when I was younger, I read a book called 15 by Beverly Cleary, which was written in the 50s, I think. And it's about a girl like falling in love with this boy. It's a really like I haven't heard of anybody else who's read this. It's a very obscure little book, but it's on my bookshelf and I haven't read it in the longest time. I became fascinated with it, obsessed with it, especially because it was set in the 1950s, I think, and I had an obsession with that. And I actually wrote an imaginary letter. Not an, I wrote a physical letter to the author. I don't even know if she's still alive, but I wrote it like as if she was still living in the 1950s. So I was like, hi, I'm writing to you from the 21st century. It's great. Like, <laughs> I loved your book. So, yeah, and I must have been like eight at the time. So I I really, really related to that. What about you? Have you ever done that? Um, Anna Rakana, not an author, but a YouTuber. I I just really, really resonated with her. She did kind of like comedy skits. And then as I got older, she did kind of like self-help blogs, like, you know, like about like the power of exercise and like positive thinking. But they weren't like, they were relatable. Like she would talk about how like she does self-destructive things and then she realized they were really self-destructive. Being on social media for too long, like she would talk about like stalking someone's mom accidentally after like a two hour, like, you know, yeah, like a spiral, like a social media spiral. Yeah. And I found that really relatable. And I sent her an email when I was, you know, maybe 12 being like, I'm so glad I know that you exist because you actually really, really helped me. And she sent an email back and she said, thanks, smiley face. And at the time, I was like, oh my god, Anna Rakana, I love you. <laughs> I can't believe you know who I am. And actually, that's a really good segue into talking about themes. Because one of the themes that I found was being a writer. So in Abby's project, she has to write kind of a fictional story for her senior year. Meanwhile, Janet is trying to write this lesbian pulp fiction novel. And they both struggle with being a writer and having a role model, a writing role model to look up to and struggling with their own writing. Yeah, which I found interesting, like you would get this, um, so we both did studio arts in high school. And I think 
when you create a piece of writing or you create a piece of art, it kind of becomes a reflection of you. It becomes something deeper. It's like giving a little bit of yourself to someone. Especially, I really related to Abby um, worrying about like, like you know how she kept on procrastinating it and procrastinating it and procrastinating it. I really related to that because it's, it's so scary, especially when you're in school having to do a creative project and just have that level of vulnerability. And also writers writing about writers. I think it's funny the idea that there could be like she's a writer writing about a writer who's writing about a writer. You know, like I found that really funny and like I just it would be funny if we were writing this down because then we would be writers writing about a writer. (laughs) (laughs) Writers writing about writers writing about writers like inception. Um, Yeah, well, because one thing that struck me is that both Abby and Janet, when they were going through difficult times in their relationships, they both had a moment of thinking, I must remember this so that I can write it down and put it into my story. Oh my God, was that relatable? Like every time something kind of shitty happens and I feel gross for a while, I'm like, oh, but this would make a good story. <laughs> like I should write this down. And I do. And that's that's actually, that is kind of my way of getting things out is that I write them down. I think it's a very valuable way of, working through your emotions and I really like how Robin Talley like draws parallels between these two characters between Janet and Abby by showing how similarly they deal with emotions and how they both write them down and they channel them into art. Do we want to move on to the theme of being normal? This was an element of the story that really really struck me in the in the 1950s portion of the book was that queerness and homosexuality was explicitly coded as non-normal in that time period and there are multiple quotes that I wrote down one of them being so they're talking to a another lesbian couple and one of the women says all through that time I thought I was perfectly normal and when Janet tells kind of tells her grandmother that she thinks she might like girls Her grandmother says, soon everything will be back to normal and you'll feel good as new. And that quote just like was so, so upsetting to me because it really highlighted how homosexuality, being a lesbian in that time, was coded as being broken. Like she says, good as new, as if Janet is broken for being who she is. And that was really, really horrifying. And there's like a literal sickness where like, you know, like, oh, once you've had this, like, once you're over this cold, you'll feel good as new, you know? Like, once you stop being gay, you'll feel good as new. You can't see me doing the air quotes. Um, (laughs) But no, I think that was really, really upsetting. But I also think um, it really resonated with me. Um, When I worked out that I was bi, I suddenly just felt so out of the normal you know like I felt like all of my friends who didn't turn out to be straight spoiler alert um (laughs) were going along this like very very straight journey like literally as in like it kind of it was the breakdown of the white picket dream you know where like you know I get married to a man and I have kids and I like have you know like that that house and stuff and it was really that breakdown where I was suddenly like yeah but what if I what if I end up with a woman and like what am I going to do with kids and what are people going to think and what are my parents going to think my parents were chill um (laughs) but like it's that feeling of suddenly being like oh my god I don't fit into of um the heterosexual dream and the heteronormative society 
And I think that's one of the reasons why Pulp is such an important book because it gives a reality to young queer kids, you know? Like, I wish this book was around when I was, like, 12, because it would have been really great. It would have, yeah, it would have helped. Um, it helped now, to be honest. But, um, yeah, you know, like, it would have been that thing where it's, like, there are people like me, and I think that's one of the main things about representation, like, one of the most important things. There needs to be representation so people don't feel like they're weird for being slightly different. Another theme that I wanted to touch on that we talked about was the power of stories and how much it influences you and your identity because both Janet and Abby find this world of lesbian pulp fiction and suddenly see themselves represented and fall in love with these stories. I think that's a really real and powerful thing because, you know, there are certain books in my life where I read them and I just went, oh, this is me. This is me. Oh my gosh. And like, it just, it's so, it's such a powerful thing to feel connected to a story and to feel connected for a story that you feel is written just for you. And that is such a special and raw thing. I really, really agree with that. And it's also... um... It's like almost having a friend who knows exactly what you're thinking. It's like your feelings being articulated in this relatable way. And it's a really, really powerful moment. Could I ask what were the books that you really related to? You don't have to answer. No, I do want to answer. Um, I think, well, just looking at my bookshelf now, I think, I think Jane Austen was one of the writers. I really loved Emma. Like that's my, I think that's my favourite. Jane Austen novel that I've read I really really related to her character and the relationships that she has with her friends and the people she doesn't like as well like I just really related to that the one of the most amazing things that I feel when reading Emma or any Jane Austen book is just like this weird sense of connection even though it was written so long ago I still feel so connected to it and that really makes me feel something special because it it makes me feel like my heart and my emotions are just stretched across centuries and I don't know I think that's a cool feeling but what what about you? Mine's a graphic novel called Ghost World it was about these girls who had just finished high school I found this really relatable when I was like 14 and they're kind of becoming politically aware But they're also still kind of like realizing all of the faults in their like feminism and also feeling this uncomfortability where they still want to fit in. Like there's this moment where there's this like really, really like disgusting guy, but they won't like they're really, really struggling to kind of call him out because they're just they're just feeling so like vulnerable in that moment. And they also want to seem like they don't want to like they want to meet the status quo and they want to fit in. And I found that really, really relatable. Also, that feeling of just being a little bit lost. And also there's these moments where um, the protagonist kind of like unapologetically explores herself. And I can remember being 14 and being like, wow, I want that to be me. Like she, it sounds really stupid now, but she wore this ridiculous hat that she found at like, like some adult store or something like this ridiculous latex hat. And she just wore it everywhere she went. And it was like a cat mask, but like covered her eyes. And when I was 14, I can remember being like, wow, I wish I had the confidence to wear something that stupid. (laughs) And just to own it. And then the other one, as completely, completely stereotypical as it is, Harry Potter. I mean, I I didn't relate. I'm not a magic boy. But 
it's just it's dried my tears it's held my hair back it's yeah and luna lovegood i really resonated with luna lovegood in terms of harry potter i was always the hermione, hermione. yeah <laughs> i was always on her side and i think i saw myself in her because she is so unapologetically hardworking yeah. and she puts way too much pressure on herself like i do but she does it because she's she loves knowledge and I loved that and also I just read the fifth book again when she gives them homework planners for Christmas I was like if you give me a homework planner for Christmas like I will love you for the end of time that is a great present but yeah you're totally a Luna Lovegood I love it yeah I just I just related to her just being off in the clouds so much Mm. like because like not so much anymore but when I was a kid I like would just suddenly like I wouldn't really talk that much and then when people would ask me stuff I would just be so off track and so out of just out of the world because I would just be immersed in my own world and so I really related to that as a kid just bringing it back to like the (laughs) (laughs) bringing it back to the power of stories a quote that I think relates to what you were saying before this is in Abby's storyline and Abby's perspective she says quote Maybe someday someone out there would read a story Abby had written and be as affected by it as these women had been by the women of the Twilight Realm, end quote. And I really loved that. That's something that I love when reading stories is that, especially like Virginia Woolf or Jane Austen, you know, old classics written by women who were so discouraged in their lifetime to not write. And when I read it and I think they would have never known that I loved their books and that we studied them and we wrote essays and papers on them and some people dedicated their life's work to researching and analyzing the stuff that they had created and it just it warms my heart kind of that connection through storytelling like there's kids who've been named after them as people who've gotten tattoos dedicated to them like I think in classics say insane and also like I mean, the most classic example would be Van Gogh mm. of that, where he was just so insane and so mentally ill mm. and he never thought anyone would celebrate his work. But now everyone knows Van Gogh's name. Mm. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and it also, it also makes me sad. I mean, if you think about Virginia Woolf who committed suicide mm. and it breaks my heart because part of me wants to reach out to all the authors, all of the influential people who have now died who really affected my life and just part of me just wants to get a message to them to say like your artwork is still being loved by people and it made a difference even like Virginia Woolf wrote this really weird biography of a cocker spaniel um (laughs) (laughs) just being bizarre my absolute favorite thing she's so strange and but can I tell you this 100-page biography of a cocker spaniel made me cry. Oh, of course it did. It was incredible. <laughs> Only Virginia Woolf could do that. I know. And so, like, it's still the bizarrest thing still touch us. Like, stories still touch us in ways that we can't imagine. And so I, I, think, I think Robin Talley, like the way that she kind of illustrated these two timelines and these two girls both being so affected by stories was really beautiful. 
So this next segment is Prejudice and Prejudice, which focuses on some of the political issues and themes that come up in the books. And we talk about marginalized groups and oppression and privilege. So this week, we are going to focus on the representation of women in the LGBTQ plus community and how that's explored in two different timelines. There's not that many stories about queer women. When you when you hear about queer stories, you know, it's it's Love, Simon, it's Holding the Man, it's, um, you know, it's white gay men and their story, like white gay cis men. And um, I think depicted in the media, like women loving women relationships are so often over-sexualized, they're catering to the male gaze. Pulp was really f- refreshing because it was about teenage girls and they had that innocence of teenagehood. It wasn't like any other queer story about women I'd ever experienced. Through the eyes of Abby, as she's researching lesbian pulp fiction, she discovers that all of the stories end in the women either being institutionalized, dying, or turning around and saying, oh, actually, I was straight the whole time. Asia, but also catering to the male gaze where it's like oh yeah lesbianism is for the male gaze you know and eventually they'll find a man and also it's buying into that narrative of a right man can make someone straight yes exactly so it's quite you know there are a lot of issues associated with that and especially quite a few of these women die in the end of the books so i did some research into this and i found a term called the bury your gaze trope which i hadn't really heard of before but this is a trope that addresses the fact that so many queer characters are killed off in film television and books I found a paper online um, from the McNair Scholars Journal from 2017 written by Haley Hulan from the Grand Valley State University and her paper is called Bury Your Gaze, History, Usage and Context. So in this paper she talks about when the trope arose and how it has kind of carried on throughout the generations and she looks at this through the new historicism lens which we looked at a bit Mm. in lit so new historicism and i quote i quote her paper here quote new historicism is an area of critical theory which focuses not only on the texts that one is examining but the social and historical context in which those texts were created and viewed end quote so when she kind of researches the bury your gaze trope she says this quote this trope was originally used as a way for gay authors to write about gay characters without coming under fire for breaking laws and social mandates against the endorsement of homosexuality However, Bury Your Gaze persists today in a time and social context in which it is no longer necessary to give gay characters and stories bad endings in order to be published. So in this paper, which is really interesting, and I'll um, link it in the show notes, she talks about how this trope was actually seen kind of as a form of protection in the 1950s. And I think Robin Talley kind of explores this in Janet's storyline as well. Yeah, so it kind of, it because one of the characters dies or realises that she was straight the entire time, it kind of evades promoting homosexuality. 
And the other thing that I wanted to mention that um one of one of our friends actually and I had a conversation after we watched Love Simon and um Love Simon was you know like it was a great film but I felt a lot of the time it felt a little bit like inspo porn like you know how he's like oh I might be gay but really I'm the same as all the straight people I feel like so often queer characters dying in the end is kind of catering to the straight gaze of kind of being like oh yeah they're just inspo porn you know mm. like they're just oh it's so tragic you know and I think it was really refreshing to read a story where there was a happy ending because that's not that doesn't happen very yeah. often it was really nice it was so hopeful when Abby is kind of trying to write her own pulp fiction story she talks about how she wants to invert the tropes she wants to turn the tropes on their head and we actually never find out how her pulp fiction story ends and if if they live happily ever after or if one of them dies in the end. But what I found really awesome is that Robin Talley is kind of combating these tropes mm. just by writing her book the yeah. way it ends. And especially um, how she kind of directly, like literally addresses that trope and um, begins to shed a light on it as well because it's not something we often talk about. In her paper, she talks about the evolution of the trope and how... In some ways, it's actually used to highlight the intense homophobia and transphobia that the queer community has to deal with and how in horrible extreme cases, it does end in death. And that's really awful. However, this kind of mindless shock factor of, oh, whoops, this character is now dead. Deal with it. It's shocking Mm. is quite harmful. I'll read this quote because I thought it was really good. Quote, Tropes are patterns in narratives that can span across genre and often continue to be used in various forms of narrative long after their original conception. It is important that creators be aware of these patterns and that they not be allowed to become givens in their genres, especially when their history and usage proves they are harmful to the larger context in which they exist, end quote. I mean, if... If the only thing you hear about your identity is sadness, it's going to make you sad yeah. and it's not very hopeful. The queer community has like gone through like so much. I mean, like all the homophobia, but also like the AIDS crisis. But we've also like we've achieved so much. And I think the tone of this was kind of acknowledging that struggle and acknowledging all of the homophobia, but also celebrating like how much work has gone into it. And I think that's one of the main things, you know, like the celebration. Can I read one of my favorite quotes that kind of highlights that? So there's a scene at the end where we discover that Janet actually never really died. Janet faked her own death in a car crash to kind of start a life of her own. So in the end, Janet and Abby actually meet up and they have a beautiful scene. It's just a beautiful conclusion to the story where you see these two timelines intersect. You see these two women finally meet each other and you as a reader know the backstory between both of them, but they don't know the backstory behind each other. I just, I loved that. I thought it was really, really beautiful. And there's a quote at the end where Abby is kind of talking about her friends and her relationship and saying, oh yes, you know, we have a very queer group of friends and we're going to all these protests and I'm writing about your books and lesbian pulp fiction and Janet as a 70 year old something year old woman says quote I'm so glad I've lived long enough to see your generation end quote and when I read that I just felt 
sad and happy at the same time. Like it just, it filled my heart with so much joy and then also so much sadness to think about those who didn't get to see this happen. Yeah, especially because it's such a heavy quote because it's also, it's alluding that there could have been suicides or murders and it just, it really brought home the you know, the reality of queer history, but also like kind of like being like, hell yes, look at the world now. It's it's better. Yeah. <laughs> We're not there yet, but it's better, which I really like. I think it's, I think it's something that needs to be celebrated more. This next segment, feminist or nah. Mm. So? Feminist. Feminist. Yeah. The amazing thing about it is that it's all about the women. Like boys who? Like <laughs> what, men? <laughs> what? <laughs> Her friend group is comprised of a lot of girls and there's one non-binary person in there. And her teacher is also a lesbian and she's like talking to her teacher about her experience and her research. She has a strange relationship with her mom. She's got her best friend slash lover. It's just, it's all about the women and it's awesome and it's intersectional as well. And I really, really loved that. And um, it didn't go for any stereotypes. One of the things that I really, really loved was that Abby identified as a lesbian and then um, wasn't butch. She was very, very feminine. And um, I think that's really, really rare. Mm. And I just, I really, really appreciated that. And she was into dresses and skirts. And um, like, I love, love butch women, love representation of butch women. But it's like, there needs to be like all kinds of women who are represented Um, who are lesbians as just having all different kinds of styles. Let's move on to the epilogue. I liked it. Um, That's my epilogue. No. um. (laughs) Full stop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, pretty much. No, I I really enjoyed it. I think it needs to be celebrated more because I hadn't heard about it until you told me about it. And I want it to be John Green level where everyone's talking about it and everyone in year seven and eight has a copy tucked under their arm when they're walking to class. I agree. I mean, I loved it. It was quite feel good without compromising reality. That was really well written, very heartwarming. That scene at the end with both women, I was just like, my heart. (laughs) So yeah. And I think as well as being a really positive representation of the LGBTQ plus community, it has really interesting ties to storytelling. I have accidentally so far in this podcast chosen two books that include themes of the importance of storytelling i actually really i really love books like that and i think it really places importance on seeing representation in stories okay so what is your final rating last full episode as you dear listener might remember bonnie just destroyed everything and decided to do it out of 10 instead of five so so Maya I guess you can use whatever measurement of quality you like but I'm still gonna do my rating out of five I'll do it out of five as well um I would say it's four out of five four out of five okay I think I'm gonna give mine a 3.75 out of five the only reason is that it took me a while to get into it. Yeah. And I think I couldn't distinguish between the two characters at the beginning. And also, yeah, I think just the the writing style, it took me a while to get into it. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe on iTunes so that you never miss an episode. You can also rate and review on your podcast platform of choice. You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore community underscore library. And you can use the hashtag, hashtag the community library on Instagram and Twitter. The cover artwork is designed by Ashley Running. And you can look at more of her work at ashleyrunning.com or you can go to helio-press.com. Is there anything you would like to plug, Maya? Follow my ceramics Instagram maya.kotoa so m-a-i-j-a dot k-o-t-o-a maya.kotoa <laughs> follow it it's a beautiful instagram account make sure you tune in to catch the next full episode which will be up in two weeks time and in that episode a guest and i will be discussing watch us rise by renee watson and ellen hagan i would love it if you could read along and then you can join in the discussion once again, thank you for listening. Thanks for hanging out with me, Maya. It was yeah. good fun. Thanks again, <laughs> And I'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs> the washing quick is ready. Get the washing. It's okay. She faked her own death. Um, no, but she reminds me. Sorry, reminds me of that dream I had about you where you faked your own death. Oh, God. You can also rate and review paints an accurate picture of the 1950s. Not that I was alive then. So, like, ah, I remember this. I remember what it said. Yeah. What was I saying? What were we talking about before? I don't even remember. This is why this is why I'll edit, I'll edit it all together and it yeah. will be in clear sections that make sense. Mm. I promise.